Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet. With more than 2 million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries, and part of the Self-Help for Smart People podcast network. In this episode, we show you the science of communication. Have you ever been afraid to speak or present? Are you afraid about not having the skills or tools to communicate your ideas to the world? We dig into the science and strategies of mastering skills like speaking and presenting, crushing the anxiety that often accompanies these high-stakes moments and share evidence-based strategies for becoming a master communicator with our guest, Matt Abrahams. Do you need more time? Time for work? Time for thinking and reading? Time for the people in your life? Time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called How You Can Create Time for the Things That Really Matter in Life. You can get it completely for free when you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com. You're also going to get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, 
and you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed happiness. Can the pursuit of happiness backfire? Why are people more depressed and anxious than ever in a time when the world is physically safer and healthier than it's ever been in history? We looked at the crisis of meaning in our society and examined how we can cultivate real meaning in our lives beyond ourselves and move towards an existence of purpose with our guest, Emily Esfahani-Smith. Now for our interview with Matt. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Matt Abrahams. Matt is a professor of strategic communication for Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. He's the co-founder of Bold Echo Communication Solutions and the author of the book, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out. His videos and training techniques have been viewed tens of millions of times on TEDx and much more. Matt, welcome to the Science of Success. Really happy to be here with you, Matt. Well, we're super excited to have you on the show. Obviously, your name is great. And I think that you got some really cool stuff to share with the audience that we can kind of dig into. Excellent. Looking forward to it. So to start out with, you know, I'm curious, and and I think you shared this, it was in, 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 I think, one of your TED Talks that you kind of got into this whole world of how we can communicate with each other more effectively through sort of speech and debate when you were when you were much younger in your life. I'd love to kind of hear that story and and hear your involvement, because I was a debater for a number of years in high school. And so I always like to connect and sort of hear people's stories from being in speech and debate and that kind of thing. Well, happy to share the story, although it's quite embarrassing. So I, I was a reluctant participant in speech and debate. As a high school freshman, my English teacher had us all stand up and introduce ourselves at the first day of class. And, and because my last name is Abrahams, I went first. And after I introduced myself, he came up and said, you know, this talking thing seems to work for you. I need you to go to this speech tournament. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I had a week to put together a speech. He said, do it on something you're passionate about. And and I was at the time and still am very passionate about martial arts. So I did a speech on karate. So I show up one cold Saturday morning in in a suit that was too short and too tight. And I was so nervous to give this speech that I forgot to put on my special karate pants. Any of you who have done martial arts know that there are pants that have a little extra room so you can move around. And I started my presentation with a karate kick because I was told, do something to get your audience's attention. And, And Matt, I'm sure you can tell where this is going. I ripped my pants doing this karate kick in the first 10 seconds of my 10 minute talk. And at that moment, I just learned the impact of anxiety on communication. And few people have singular moments in their life that set them on a trajectory. But but upon reflection, that, that moment really set my passion for figuring out the role of confidence in speaking and what it means to come off as authentic and, and be a really engaging communicator. So speech and debate is something I continue doing after that moment, mostly to prove to myself that I could do it. But it definitely affected my, my entire life and career. So I want to dig into this. I know you've got some incredible kind of strategies and, and tactics that you've sort of researched yourselves and uncovered in the science and the data. You know, before we get too deep down the rabbit hole, I'd love to kind of start with, you know, the question that you sort of accidentally uncovered with your karate kick. How does anxiety... Physically <laughs> uncovered too, yes. That's right. Yeah, there you go. How does anxiety prevent us from being kind of the best communicators that we could be? So I think it, it has, there are two ways in which it affects us. First and foremost, if you have ever watched a nervous communicator communicate, you as an audience member feel nervous and uncomfortable yourself. And because of that, it prevents you from actually connecting and remembering and engaging with the speaker. So one form of impact is on the audience. 
The other form is that because of our increased self-awareness, because of the distraction of the physiological symptoms that result, it doesn't allow us to be our true selves, to be able to communicate fully and be completely involved and engaged. So both sides of that equation, its effects on us as well as its effects on our audience, really, really hamper us from sharing our ideas, telling our stories, and, and really being present with others. I think it's really interesting that you kind of bring the component of the audience into this equation because a lot of people, especially those who kind of fear speaking or, you know, don't have a lot of confidence in, in when they're giving, even in sort of small situations like presentations or meetings, et cetera, you know, kind of focus solely on their own experience when in reality, it's sort of a two-way street. And I know that's another sort of thing you talk about kind of deeper into this as well. Yeah. So to me, a foundational tenet of all effective communication is being audience centric. Your job is to be in service of the needs of your audience, be it a presentation audience, those in a meeting or even in an interpersonal conversation. So my mind is always thinking about the impact of this stuff on the audience. And if and when you and I get into discussing techniques for managing anxiety, we'll talk about some things you can do to change your relationship with the audience so that it can help you feel more comfortable and confident when you present. Well, let's come back to before we dig into kind of some of the techniques and strategies, I want to talk about kind of where uh, this anxiety is coming from and why so many people have, you know, fear or get anxious around speaking and communicating across a, a kind of a myriad of circumstances throughout our lives. Yeah. So I and, and other researchers fully believe that this is built in. It's hardwired. We see anxiety in communication across culture and typically across age range. So this is something that is ubiquitous and a part of the human condition. So that leads us to think there's a, there's something biological in our evolutionary history. And I happen to affiliate with the camp that says really what's at stake whenever you communicate in a high stakes situation is your status. And I'm not talking about who drives the fanciest car, who gets the most likes on a post. What I'm talking about is is from an evolutionary perspective thousands of years ago, your relative status to others in the group associated with meant everything. It meant your access to resources, to food, to shelter, to reproduction. And anything you did that put your status at risk was literally life-threatening. And communicating in front of others can be very risky in terms of your status. So that is why I and other academics believe that, that we feel this anxiety that comes up in interpersonal situations, performance situations, testing situations. It's all from that risking of status. You know, it's funny, the very first episode that we ever did of Science of Success is called The Biological Limits of the Human Mind. And we talked about how evolution has, in, in many cases, kind of baked in these behaviors and shortcuts, which often work out really well and have a, sort of a survival benefit, but in modern society can typically or frequently kind of short circuit in ways that we couldn't really predict or imagine. And I think that's happening to us when it comes to this anxiety around speaking. Now, certainly being aware of your situation, being aware of the significance of what your communication and interactions might mean in the short term and long term, that does have advantages to us still to this day. But because it is so significant, this risking of status, it puts us in a situation that doesn't necessarily fit with many of the situations we find ourselves in on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Yeah, I think this is a great kind of contextualized example of one particular avenue of how the brain can sort of short circuit and how these kind of biological limits can hinder us. But there's actually a ton of science and research and strategies as well around how to combat that and ultimately become a more effective communicator. Yes, there are. Well, let's dig into a little bit more around some of these sort of solutions for being a better communicator and and specifically around dealing with kind of the anxiety that comes from communicating. Sure. So from my perspective, there are two fundamental approaches you have to take to managing anxiety. One is dealing with the symptoms that we experience, the physiological and cognitive symptoms. And then there's the actual sources of anxiety that that make it worse. So for example, many of us, when we get nervous, we blush and perspire. And that's because our core body temperature is increasing. When you feel under threat, and that's what speaking in high stakes situations is experienced as internally by your body. It's a threat. So the fight or flight response gets activated. When that happens, a whole bunch of neurohormones are released, cortisol, adrenaline, et cetera. And what that does is it causes your body to get tense. If you're about to run away or fight, getting tense is actually a good thing. And that causes your blood pressure to increase. And when that happens, your physical temperature goes up and that's what leads to blushing and to sweating. So a wonderful thing you could do, and this happens to me, my big symptom of anxiety is blushing. If you hold something cold in the palms of your hands before you speak in a high stakes situation, you actually reduce your core body temperature and that reduces the sweating and the blushing. I am sure you and everybody listening has at some point in their life been cold and held warm coffee or warm tea and felt how it warms them up. We're just using this in reverse to counteract a very normal symptomatic response to our anxiety around communication. So that's a symptomatic approach you can take to reducing one symptom. Now, in terms of the sources of anxiety, there are many sources that exacerbate anxiety. For example, many of us, when we are communicating, feel as if we are being evaluated by our audience. And in fact, we are. So a great way to manage this source of anxiety is in essence to distract your audience, get them focused on something else So they're not focused on you. And this gives you a little bit of a breather, gives you an opportunity to collect yourselves. I'll give you an example of what I mean. In my coaching practice, I was fortunate to coach an executive who's doing very well in his career, but he keeps getting really nervous every time he presents. And so what we do is every time he gives a big presentation, he starts with either a video clip or a poll, and the audience pays attention to that clip or that poll, giving him a little bit of a break to collect himself. So while they're distracted, which by the way is actually getting them more engaged with his content, which is a good thing, he has that opportunity to collect his thoughts. So when it comes to managing anxiety, you have to attack both the symptoms and the sources to help you feel better. I think that's such a great distinction and something that, I mean, I've, I've interviewed and discussed and read a tremendous amount about dealing with anxiety and dealing with fear. And I don't think I've ever seen it sort of so cleanly broken out into kind of solving symptoms versus solving sources. I think that's a great framework. Yeah. And it helps a lot of people. The, the, the sources pieces tend to be a little more overwhelming for people. So if you scaffold your anxiety management by starting with some of these symptoms, you begin to feel traction and feel as if you're getting a hang of 
managing your anxiety, and then you can begin to approach some of the the sources, which are a little more complex to address. So it not only does it give you a wider variety of techniques you can use, it actually gives you a progression that can help you feel like you have more sense of an agency in this actual combating your anxiety. Well, let's dig into, I think the, the kind of the holding something cold is a great example. I'd love to hear a few other strategies, maybe starting with the symptom bucket, how we can in real time, you know, we're, we're about to give a speech or we're doing something and we kind of feel that anxiety creeping in. What are some of the things we can do to address those symptoms as they're coming on or as they're happening? Sure thing. Happy to share several with you. So uh, several people, when they get nervous, get a little shaky and that's the adrenaline coursing through your body. If you do something that engages big muscles, you allow that adrenaline to dissipate. Most nervous speakers make themselves tight and small and they hold that in. So they actually shake more. So if you were to start a presentation or a meeting by doing a big, broad gesture of welcoming people, just say, welcome to the meeting, or I'm so excited you're here in my presentation and extend your arms wide and take a step towards your audience, you're engaging big muscles. And by engaging those big muscles, the adrenaline dissipates and you stop shaking. And that can be really helpful. Another thing people struggle with in terms of symptoms is they feel that their breath is short and that they end up speaking very quickly because they're breathing quickly. So nothing works better than taking a deep, calming breath, something you might do if you're taking yoga or doing Tai Chi or Qigong. That'll slow you down and slow down your heart rate, which many people, when they get nervous, can feel pounding in their chest. Another thing that helps, a lot of nervous speakers speak so fast. There's sort of this idea that if we speak faster, we'll get done sooner. So if you gesture more slowly, you will actually slow down your speaking rate. It's very difficult for the brain because of cognitive load to speak fast and gesture slow. We tend to sync those up. So you'll notice people who speak quickly tend to gesture quickly. So we can use that to our advantage and slow down our gesturing to slow down our speech rate. So those are just a few techniques that you can use to combat some of the symptoms that we experience. That's great. That's really funny. I naturally speak very quickly, especially I think it's that exact kind of nervous energy that wants to be done as, as quickly as possible. And so the act of sort of slowing down my gestures, I think, is a great personal thing that I'm definitely going to implement. Yeah, I think you'll see some change right away with that. So let's kind of flip to dealing with the sources, which I know can be a little bit more kind of thorny and, and get a little bit more complicated. What are some of the the strategies or, or things you touched on one of them, obviously, but some of the other kind of techniques that you've seen and the science kind of shows are some of the most effective ways to do that? Sure. Let me share two with you. First, we've known for a long time that people who perform get very nervous. Performance anxiety is something well known in the literature. And any of your listeners, yourself included, Matt, if you've ever done any acting, singing, dancing, or played a sport, you know what this performance anxiety feels like. Because in each one of those activities, there's a right way to do it. If you're an actor, you have to speak your line in the right way in the right place. If you're an athlete, you have to do what your sport requires at exactly the right time in the right way. And some sports even keep track of the errors and mistakes people make. So we feel tremendous pressure in these performance situations. Now, the problem is many of us take our communication as a performance. So we feel there's a right way to do it and we want to do it right. And the reality is, in all my years of teaching and coaching, there is no right way to communicate. There's certainly better and worse ways, but there is no one right way. 
So we have to do what in the academic literature we call cognitive reframing. We have to reframe the speaking situation, not as a performance, but see it as something else. And research that I was involved with a long, long time ago in graduate school and some of my colleagues did uh, research on is this notion of converting speaking as performance to see it as conversation. Most people are not as anxious or anxious at all when they're having a conversation. So if you can see your communication is conversational, it will help you feel better. So how do you do that? Well, one is if you're practicing like a presentation or for a meeting, practice it conversationally. Sit down at a coffee shop or with some friends and just talk it through. If you practice it as if it's a performance, you're just reinforcing that performance approach. Another thing to do is to use conversational language. Nervous people distance themselves linguistically. They'll use words like one must consider instead of you should consider. So use words like us, you, we. That's all conversational. And then finally, and this will resonate well with you, Matt, I know, based on what you do, asking questions. Questions are incredibly conversational. So if you can use those techniques of practicing conversationally, using conversational language, using questions, you help yourself see your speaking as conversational rather than performance. And there's a long history of research saying not only does that make you as a communicator feel less nervous, but it also engages your audience more because we respond more to conversational approach. So that's one source and one way to deal with it. Another source has to do with our time orientation. And when I was an undergraduate, I did some research in this notion of time orientation. And what we know is what contributes to people's anxiety is their worry about potential negative future outcomes. In other words, we're worried about what could go wrong. So the students I teach are worried they're not going to get an A. The entrepreneurs I coach are worried they're not going to get funding. So if we can somehow get people not to be future focused, and that is anxious, but help them be present focused, they can then short circuit that anxiety. And there are lots of ways to become present oriented. Matt, you've probably seen athletes who, before they do their sport, listen to a song or a playlist. You're doing something physical, walking around the building, shaking hands with people. I do a silly thing that helps me get present oriented. I count backwards from 100 by a challenging number. Uh, most recently, I started it with 17s. Try counting backwards from 100 by 17s, and you have to be present oriented to do that. So there are many sources of anxiety, and there are things you can do. You can reframe things from being a performance to conversation. You can change your time orientation from being future-oriented to being present-oriented, and those will help. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. 
Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. One of the other strategies that I know you've you've talked about and written about is is the idea of kind of greeting your anxiety. I'd love to dig into that a little bit. Thank you for asking that question. So many of your listeners are familiar with the notion of mindfulness and mindfulness is so important for so many reasons. And a, an anxiety management technique that comes from the study of mindfulness is this notion of greeting your anxiety rather than getting caught up in it. So interestingly, many of us get nervous because we're nervous. And that sounds silly, but it's true. And you've probably experienced this. If you're starting to get nervous about a communication, maybe you want to ask someone on a date, or maybe you, you have something important to say in a meeting, and you start to feel your heart beat faster and the sweat on your brow, and then you say, oh my goodness, how did I get here? Why, why am I trying this? Why isn't it somebody else? I, I'm not prepared. And all of a sudden, you're spiraling out of control because your anxiety is carrying you away. We can stop that by simply invoking a mindfulness practice, which is greeting the emotion that we're feeling at the time and give ourselves permission to experience it. So we simply say, this is me feeling nervous. It makes sense that I'm nervous. I'm going to do something that's important to me that's of consequence and significance. And in so doing, you give yourself space. You give yourself a sense of agency and control over something that many get carried away from. And mindfulness teaches us that this doesn't just work with anxiety. It works with any emotion. So applying this approach and giving yourself permission to experience the anxiety is really, really empowering. And I wanted to dig into that and ask about that one specifically because that's something that has worked really well for me. And I think we've talked about that technique or sort of variations of that in, in past interviews on the show. And that's something that personally I always have found kind of cultivating that self-compassion and that permission to be 
anxious or angry or whatever in the given situation is a great way to kind of break the loop of getting anxious about being anxious or angry about being angry, et cetera. I like how you said that. It is breaking the loop. And and the part of the challenge, I think, is and what I find in my work is a lot of people don't talk about their anxiety around speaking. So we end up feeling like we're the only ones who have it, which is absolutely not the case. In fact, 85 percent of people report being nervous in high stakes situations. So it's the rare person who doesn't feel nervous. But because we don't talk about it, because it's not something that we share, it's hard for us to give ourselves that permission and be compassionate with ourselves because we feel we're broken or it's it's wrong for us to feel it because we don't think others have it. So just understanding that we're not alone allows us more permission to be kind to ourselves when it comes to dealing with our anxiety and communicating. So I want to go a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole and talk about kind of some of the self-defeating sort of beliefs that can often perpetuate or, or exacerbate our anxiety. So there are many. One of them has to do with perfectionism, and that that's close to that notion of getting things right. So people want their communication to be perfect, and they want the situation and the experience that the communication occurs in to be perfect. And you get into that analysis paralysis phase where you're, you're thinking and so concerned about everything that it prevents you from actually doing anything. And I do a lot of work that is incorporating more and more from the world of improvisation. And there are some really powerful learnings from improvisation that can help people who are nervous speakers or working to become more confident speakers. And one of the key tenets in improvisation is this notion of dare be dull. Everybody is striving for greatness. We all wanna give that right answer or say the right thing at the right time. And that perfectionism gets in the way So if you just dare to be dull, do what needs to be done, say the piece that needs to be done, you actually, by reducing the pressure you put on yourself, increase the likelihood that you will actually say the perfect thing or the better thing. So one thing we have to work on is reducing that sense of perfectionism. And another thing I would say, another self-defeating approach is a lot of us start in our communication by saying, this is what I need to say. And we make it very specific to us. And as I alluded to earlier, it's all about your audience. It's not what you want to say. It's what they need to hear. And that sounds like verbal jujitsu where I'm just moving words around. But in fact, it's a foundationally, fundamentally different approach. So if you make it about your audience and not about yourself, you get out of that self-defeating spiral of, of analyzing everything you're doing and evaluating everything you're doing. And you realize that you have something valuable to say to your audience and this act of communicating is helping them. And that really can change how you feel and the experience from the audience's perspective. I loved the example uh, from improv that you, I think you have a speech where you kind of went through an exercise and you kind of point at things and, and say the wrong thing. So would, you, <laughs> would you kind of explain that to the audience? And for whatever reason, it's a really fun exercise. It's called shout the wrong name and you can play this game anywhere. And if your listeners are familiar, improv is, a, is an approach to, it came out of the acting world, but it's really an approach to life. And it typically is comprised of playing games. And these games have a deeper philosophical and life intended meaning. And one game is called Shout the Wrong Name, where you literally point at things or, or, or look at things and you say 
anything but they what they're really called. So if you're sitting in a room and there's a window, you would point at the window and you would call it a cat or you would call it ugly or you would call it a fireplace. It's anything but what it is. And I use this game to prove or show to people just how much we evaluate ourselves. So after we play the game for a little bit, I ask people, I say, what was that experience? And people say it's hard. And I say, why is it hard? And often what comes up is people are judging the wrongness of the words they use. So they look at the window and they say it's a fireplace. Well, fireplaces are sort of like windows. So that's not really good. I should have called it maybe an animal. So they're doing all this judging and evaluating, which serves to stifle the actual being present and just doing what needs to be done. And when people have that epiphany through that game, they really get this idea of that we have to get out of our own way. We have to just allow to have come up what comes up. And then we uncover other things in that game. People stockpile. So when I describe the game, my immediate question afterwards is, who knows the first five things they're going to say? And sheepishly, almost everybody in the room raises their hand because your brain is wired to help you. When there's a challenge, you want it to help you. And sometimes that help gets in the way of actually experiencing the moment. So that shout the wrong game name game is really fun. And I would encourage all of your listeners just to try it on their own and see what it brings up for them. But it, it's a lot of fun to play. For whatever reason, when I do that exercise, I, I just start laughing. My brain, for some reason, is like really funny to like point at my speaker and call it a banana or something. I don't know why, but it just it just makes me laugh. But I thought I think it's a great exercise. And I think, as you said, it sort of builds that muscle of kind of breaking the pattern and forcing yourself to be present and be OK with imperfection. It absolutely does. And if, if any of your listeners are, are not in a place where they can do that or feel that's a little challenging, you can do the same thing. I, I challenge all of you right now listening to fold your arms in front of your chest like you normally would. And now I ask you to do the same thing the opposite way. That experience that you just felt like, oh my goodness, this feels weird and awkward. I can't believe it. That's the same thing that comes from the activity of shout the wrong name. And it's the same thing that Matt and I are talking about, that, that permission to give yourself freedom in your communication and in your actions. So just to clarify, you're saying cross your arms one way and then cross them the other way? Yeah. So fold your arms in front of your chest like you normally would. Let's say you're cold or, you're, or, or somebody said something that really challenges you. And now cross them the opposite way. So have the other hand on top. I like can't even, my brain is like breaking when I'm trying to do this. <laughs> exactly. That's how patterned we are. And that's what that activity, as well as the shout the wrong name activity is showing us, is uncovering our patterns that we use in a day-to-day -day basis, the habits we have. And sometimes we have to change those habits into choices so we can have a broader tool set to confront our communication or other opportunities in our lives. What are some of the other kind of lessons or strategies that you've discovered or uncovered from uh, improv comedy? I'll share two with you. The first has to do with seeing communication as an opportunity. Often we feel so threatened. Take a question and answer session. Say you're interviewing for a job or you've just given a presentation and your audience is now going to ask you questions. Many of us feel very defensive in that situation. We have to protect our position. We have to defend the threat of the questions. And that puts us in a very different space, a very negative space. It affects our nonverbal presence. We tend to be tight and, and closed. It affects our responses. They tend to be short and curt and not detailed. What if you were to see those situations as opportunities, to see them actually as a, a place where you can expand, where you can help somebody else? 
that would change your entire approach. You would be more open. Your answers would be more clear and in-depth and detailed. And improv teaches us that. In fact, the most foundational principle in improvisation is yes and. This notion of somebody asks you something and you say yes to it and you move forward. That openness, that seeing the interaction as one of opportunity, not threat, can profoundly change how we communicate and interact. The second piece that comes from improv, and this is going to sound strange to people, improv is actually a lot about structure. And you think that's counterintuitive because you think people are just making things up on the spot. And they are, but they're doing so within a defined set of rules or practices. So if you play an improv game like Shout the Wrong Name, there's some rules to that game. Most improv activities have rules and boundaries, and those provide the structure. A colleague of mine who I work with when I do some improv work, he likes to say that if you give children a blank field and just say, go play, they'll play and they'll be creative. But if you give them a jungle gym to play on, their creativity goes through the roof. The physical structure of the jungle gym invites more opportunities for them to be creative. The same thing is true with communication. Using structure helps you. You've all heard people just ramble. Hopefully I'm not doing that right now. But when you ramble, it's hard to pay attention. As an audience, it gets confusing. So if you provide information in a structured way, it helps your audience. So structure can help as well as just adopting an opportunity mindset rather than one of threat. Great learning. And it's funny, you know, I've kind of toyed with the idea of actually taking improv classes. I have no desire to be, you know, a comedian or anything like that, but really just to sort of force myself through the kind of training of learning that kind of communication skill set and being uncomfortable with it. I cannot encourage you more, Matt, to do that. And improvisation, when taught right, is not about acting and performing and being on a stage. It's about exactly what you were talking about. And in fact, in the classes I teach uh, at the business school, as well as the consulting I do, the next step I often encourage people to consider is taking improvisation for exactly the reasons you you highlighted. So do yourself a favor and try it. It's a lot of fun and will really help your confidence as well as your ability to respond in the moment in your communication. So confidence is, is a topic that I think is worth kind of digging into. Is there a difference between sort of the strategies that you, you've shared and talked about around kind of decreasing anxiety versus some of the strategies that you've seen or the research kind of shows for building confidence around kind of speaking and communicating? That's a really insightful question. And thank you for asking that. A lot of us, myself included, most of the time conflate those two terms. But in fact, they are a bit different. To me, confidence has several components, one of which is managed anxiety for sure. But additionally, confidence has two other pieces. It has this notion of presence. So a confident communicator is one who is immediately present with his or her audience. They're not the people who are going to start their slide presentation and get through it no matter what happens. There's a level of meta-awareness in confident speakers who adjust and adapt their communication to what's happening in the moment. That's what I mean by presence. So confident speakers are present when they're involved in their communication. Additionally, Confident speakers convey emotion, and I don't mean they're necessarily pounding their chest screaming, but there is an emotion in what they're saying. Confidence is about that allowing yourself to show emotion when you speak. And in doing so, by being having that presence and by allowing emotion, you truly can be authentic. So there's a lot of connection between confidence and authenticity. 
Again, this is all predicated on managing your anxiety, but there are things that you can do to bolster your confidence once you've got anxiety under control. What are some of those confidence building strategies? Well, we've talked about a couple. One is having that audience-centric approach, really being there for your audience. Another is to imagine yourself in conversation with your audience. So I'll give you a very concrete example. Confident people uh, adjust and adapt. And one way to prepare yourself to adjust and adapt is rather than having a whole list of bullet points that you want to cover or information on a slide, simply approach your communication as a series of questions that you want to answer. So if you were to look at my lecture notes when I lecture to my students, you'll see it's just a series of questions. So when I am lecturing, I am answering the unasked questions of my students. And in so doing, it puts me in a very different place. I'm very present. I'm using inclusive language. I am connective with my audience. And all of that displays or comes across as being confident. So really thinking about how you relate to your audience demonstrates that confidence. One last thing I'll mention about confidence. Confidence is a balancing act between warmth and strength. So confident people have found a way to balance warmth, being open, being emotionally available with demonstrating their competence, their knowledge area, what expertise they have. And that's something that we have to think about. You know, a lot of us err, especially if we're younger or newer in a position, err on the side of this strength where we like to pound our chest and share what we know, why, why we're uh, justified in being in the interaction or even in the room that we're in. And that can be a mistake. So we need to, to make sure that we're constantly balancing our warmth and our, our strength in our interactions. And confident speakers have learned ways to do that. How do we add more warmth to our speaking? Yeah, so some of it's linguistic. Again, asking questions, inclusive language. Some of it is nonverbal. So nodding and staying open in our body posture, pausing. Paraphrasing is a wonderful warmth enabling tool. So when somebody says something, you take what they say to validate it. It doesn't mean you repeat exactly the same words, but you comment on either the emotion or the gist of the idea. Those are ways to show warmth to people. It could also be pre-interaction work. You know, if you have a big meeting tomorrow, you could write somebody in advance and say, Ray, looking forward to it. In fact, Matt, you did that for me for this very podcast. You, you, a very nice email came to me saying, looking forward to chatting with you. That is signaling warmth before we ever connected. So there are things you can do in the moment as well as in advance. And certainly everybody knows if you do an interview or have a nice interaction with somebody, sending a thank you or a follow up, all of those demonstrate your warmth to help others see that you really are a caring person. That's a great kind of toolkit. And I think that's something that I, the reason I was curious, I personally kind of struggle with the warmth component. I think I sometimes fall too far on sort of the strength side, especially kind of the show, since we sort of focus on science and evidence. Whenever I'm speaking, I'm always like, these are the facts, you know what I mean? And so I think I want to add in a little bit more warmth to it. What I have found, I work with many technologists, many scientists, and, and it is about the facts and the stats and the data. But if any of the data, the facts, the stats, the technology are having, think about the impacts and ramifications they have. So if you're saving trees, if you're saving time, if you're saving money, if you're saving lives, there's emotion there that you can tap into and that warmth can come from that piece of it. So it doesn't have to be the science itself. 
but it could be the implications of the science where you can really demonstrate warmth and concern. That makes a ton of sense. That's, thanks for the feedback. So I, I want to come back to this kind of strategy you talked about of using questions as kind of the structure, the outline for your speaking. I think that's a really compelling strategy. And you know, as somebody who kind of grew up in the world of speech and debate and that kind of stuff, I have a similar approach, which is I can almost never give a speech word for word or kind of memorize the specific things. I can almost only talk off of talking points and which is, you know, sort of the flip side of a question in some ways. Yeah, I totally get where you're coming from. I'm very similar. And in fact, I actively discourage people from memorizing. Memorizing feeds into that whole performance mindset we talked about a while back. So, I like using questions and and let me share with you a way that might help you and others. There is a structure that I I am so passionate about. It is called the what, so what, now what structure. I believe most of our communications can be fit into this structure. And you'll notice all three of those are questions. What, so what, and now what? So if you are answering a question, this is your life, Matt. I know you ask questions, you answer questions. You can answer a question with that structure. The what is the answer? The so what is why it's important? And the now what is what you do with the answer that you were just given? If you are giving feedback and somebody says, you know, what do you think about the podcast I just did? The what is the feedback? The so what is why it is important to the person? And the now what is what you'd like them to do differently or continue doing if it's positive feedback? So using a structure structure that's question-based, what, so what, now what, can be really helpful because not only does it help you organize your thoughts, it makes it directly relevant to your audience because the second point, the so what, is all about the value to the audience. And it helps you be concise because there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. So using that question-based approach leveraged through a structure can really transform the way people communicate. I, in fact, write my emails in that structure. And people tell me that my emails are much clearer than others they receive simply because there's a structure to them. I think that's a great kind of mini learning from from this whole conversation is that we've been talking primarily about speaking, but communicating is, you know, especially in today's world, there's so many other kind of avenues and venues. And a lot of these lessons could be applied to something like email as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and every quarter I teach, I'll have a student come up and say, I just used this when I was writing a presentation or writing an email and and it just blew my mind that I could apply these same practices to to that type of communication. But communication at the at a foundation is really all the same thing. It's transmission of meaning from one person to another. And so these techniques apply more or less to any form of communication. So I encourage everybody to think about how you can use structure and see things as opportunities in written and spoken communication. You know, what, so what, now what structure in a funny way sort of uncovers essentially the hidden narrative that we use for most of our podcast episodes, right? Kind of the first third of the episode is around what are these kind of ideas and and what is the science? And the second half is why does that matter? And then the third or kind of the latter half of the episode is typically how do you apply that to your own life? So it's funny that without even consciously doing that, we've been, we sort of fallen into that narrative pattern. The secret is out. Yes. And it works well, right? And you've gotten great response to to your podcast that that approach that structure is really intuitive and resonates with people. And it helps you as the people who create the podcast. So that's cool. So for listeners who want to kind of concretely implement, you know, some of the ideas, tactics, strategies that we've talked about today, and I think we've given them some piece of homework already, but what would be kind of an action step or a piece of homework that you would give them to put some of these ideas into practice? There are a couple of things that come to mind. First and foremost, like any skill you're trying to build, like an athletic skill or something, a language skill, 
It's all about repetition, reflection, and feedback. You need to give yourself an opportunity to get the reps in. So as many opportunities as you can to communicate in the way you want to work on. So if you want to work on presentations, find avenues to give presentations. For example, I'm a big fan of Toastmasters. If you haven't heard of Toastmasters, you should check them out. It's an organization dedicated just to giving people opportunities to practice. Check out universities and community colleges who have courses on, on communication. Find venues to practice. So if you're passionate about a particular hobby or in some organization you belong to, a religious organization, a, a public service organization, get up and speak. It's all about the reps. Then take the time to reflect at the end of any communication, a presentation, a meeting, even an interpersonal interaction. Take just a moment or two and think about what worked and what didn't work. You know, there's that silly definition of, of insanity where you do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. People do that with their communication. If you don't reflect on what worked and what didn't, you're likely to do the same thing again. So I encourage my consulting clients at the end of their meetings to dedicate two minutes to just say, how did the communication in this meeting go? And what can we do better and differently next time? So that reflection piece is critical. And then finally, find a trusted other, a mentor, a colleague, a loved one who can give you honest feedback. We are not the best judges of our own communication because our communication isn't intended for us. It's intended for others. So we need to have others let us know if we're hitting the mark or not. So the homework is really around repetition, reflection, and feedback and take the opportunity to build your skills. And like any other skill, you can get much better at your communication. And for listeners who want to dig in, learn more, be able to find you and your work online, what is the best place for them to go? Yeah, thank you. So I have several avenues people can explore. One, uh, the book I've written, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, covers many of the concepts that we've talked about today. My consulting practice that I co-founded is boldecho.com. We want people to communicate boldly and have their messages echo long after they're gone. And then I curate a website that has a bunch of free resources that I've created and others, and it's called nofreakingspeaking.com. So those are three good avenues to continue the conversation about building confidence and, and compelling communication. Well, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing all of these kind of practical strategies and tactics. And it's been a great conversation and really enjoyed having you on here. Thank you, Matt. It's been fantastic talking to you and I've enjoyed listening to the podcast myself. Please keep up the good work. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand 
our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.